Hello and good day, depending on where you're from. <laughs> it is so good to be and with you all. It's always a privilege to, to come. This is my third time in Gilbert. And whenever I come, I'm just always aware that I'm with family. And I don't take that lightly. You know, I've hung out with the Richardsons all weekend, which have been fun. Both Rich and Tiffany and the kids. And each and every time I'm with them, I'm, I'm just... Freshly aware that they are family. I love them. I respect them. They are both endearing and enduring in the way they live their lives as a family. And, and I'm aware that, you know, the church tends to become like their leaders. And so I interact with you and you're the same. You're both endearing and enduring, which I deeply respect. And so I come from Sovereign Grace Church of Sydney as your friend, as somebody that's privileged to partner with you all and to stand with you all and represent you on occasions um, in different countries around the world. The truth is sovereign grace um, around the world is going really, really well. Um, God is doing some incredible things in countries. I was just in the Philippines in May and there's over 25 churches there in the Philippines that want to become a part of sovereign grace. And so we have a number of men going through the ordination process and leaning in. In March, I was in Liberia and they have a pastor's college with 85 students. And they all want to be Sovereign Grace. They're all trying to figure out how do we actually build Sovereign Grace churches of Liberia. And so the future is bright around the world, but that's only been possible because of churches and because of people like you. So thanks for living it. Thanks for living out the gospel. We are about the gospel being applied and known and proclaimed. And that's what you stand for. That's what you live for. And so thank you for being in many ways, for us around the world, our big brother that we can look at and learn from and seek to examine. You are the home of the brave and the land of the free. No one is free around the world or brave, apparently, but we really respect you and we're for you and we love partnering with you and calling you family. And it's a privilege to bring God's word to you today. So why don't you go ahead and turn in your Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 19. We're presently in a series back home in Sydney um, of going through the book of Exodus. It's a wonderful story of how God draws us out and draws us into himself. And that's what he does with Israel. He not only draws them out of Egypt, but he draws them into a relationship with himself. And right here in chapter 19, and the opening six verses, we really come to one of the most important parts in the entire book. See, in Exodus chapter 3, you have the wonderful picture of the burning bush. God speaks to Moses at the burning bush. He's on Mount Sinai at the time. He pulls Moses to himself and he explains to Moses that it's time. I've heard the cries of my people and I want you to go and let Pharaoh know that it's time to let my people go. And when the time is right, I will save my people out of Egypt and then I will bring them to this mountain where they can worship me. And for the last 19 chapters, that's what's been going on. That's what's actually been playing out. God has gloriously delivered Israel from Egypt. He saved them by grace alone, through faith alone, in the blood of the Lamb of alone. They've now walked through the Red Sea, and God has been carefully directing them to Mount Sinai through places like Rephidim and Marah and Elim. For the last three months, they've been wandering around the wilderness, making their way to Mount Sinai, but now... They've arrived. They've arrived to the very place that God said he would bring them back. So there they are at Mount Sinai, two million Israelites. And this is what God says to them. 
Chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. All the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do need your help this morning. We are a distracted people. We have our minds filled with so many things. But Lord, I do pray in this moment, you would you still our souls to be attentive to your word. Lord, I thank you for your word. Your word is sharper than a double-edged sword. It has hands, it lays hold of us. It has feet, it runs after us. It has a mouth, it speaks to us. Lord, did you do what no preacher can actually do? Would you change hearts? Would we hear your voice through my voice today? Would it be your voice? It is in our ears. And Lord, change our lives. In Jesus' precious name, amen. You know, in my mind, there is simply nothing quite like a good story. I love good stories, whether they be in a book or a novel or ideally in a movie. I'm kind of a movie type of guy. I just really like good stories. And if they're a trilogy, then even better. And one of my favorites by a long way is J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. It's a classic. I remember seeing it in the movies the first time. I hadn't read the book, but I went to the movies and I saw the first one and I didn't realize it was going to be three parts. I was destroyed at the end. I mean, you get to the end and you're like, what do you mean it's finished? When's the next one? Like next week? No, two years. You're like, two years? And then it comes out and you're like, is is that it? No, there's another one. How long have I got to wait? Two years? Praise the Lord, I didn't die in between, you know, because I would have never known what happened. I mean, it's just epic storyline. And every time I would see it, you know, you'd be just, I couldn't even have time to eat the popcorn. You're just like, whoa, this is amazing. You're just totally drawn into the story. It's an epic story. And I loved it. And like with every good storyline, with every good storyline, more often than not, you find there is a hinge moment. A moment in the story where you realize... Things will never be the same again. And that moment happens in the first part of the Lord of the Rings when they're in Rivendell and they're starting to argue and work out who is going to take this ring to the fires of Mordor so it can be dropped in and destroyed so that truth and goodness can actually prevail around the world and not evil. And all the kings and all the states... They start to complain and argue over who's going to take it. Well, I'll take it and I'll take it. And they start to get into different fights. And then you hear this one small voice coming from a small hobbit over in the corner, young Frodo. 
as he puts up his hand and says, I'll take the ring. And they don't hear him because they're too busy arguing and fighting. So he speaks even louder. I I will carry the ring. And at that point, the camera goes to Gandalf. And you just see Gandalf's face just look down as he realizes Frodo's the right guy to take the ring. But this is going to change his life. He's going to be carrying the scars of this adventure for the rest of his life. He will never be the same again. And that's the point where the story completely changes. Frodo's life never is the same again. The storyline completely changes from that point on. And right here in Exodus chapter 19, particularly verses 4 through 6, we have the hinge moment in this story. And the moment where you realize from this point on, nothing will ever be the same again. Because this is the moment that words are uttered that change everything. This is the hinge moment. Nothing will ever be the same again after these verses. See, all scholars would say that verses 4 through 6 of chapter 19 is the center of the book of Exodus. Some would actually say, listen, that isn't just the center of the book of Exodus, that's the center of the Pentateuch. And others would say, no, that isn't just the center of Exodus and the Pentateuch, it is the center of the entire Old Testament. This is an incredibly important moment in the history of Israel. These are words that change everything and words which ensure that nothing will ever be the same again. And it's my hope this morning that as we, as we examine these words, that if you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that as it is being preached, as God is drawing our attention to these words, that you would flee from your sin and run straight to the Lord the true Savior of all, the true King. And if you are here today and you are a Christian, it's my sincere prayer that you would realize afresh this morning just how precious you are to the Lord, who you really are before Him, and how He feels about you, and the profound opportunity that He has given you in your life to do incredible things for Him. These are words that change everything. So three points this morning. Number one, our glorious salvation. Number two, our purposeful and kind command. And then number three, our profound opportunity. Let's start then where I believe the Lord would have us start, our glorious salvation. And look with me at verse 4. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. See, right up front, as God wants to address the people of God from Mount Sinai, the first thing he wants them to understand is who they really are, what their identity really is. And his point is simple. You are a saved and a redeemed people. Israel, that's your identity. You are saved and you are redeemed. And he really wants them to get it. That's why at the start of verse 4, you read, you yourselves. Anybody ever done English class? That is a really bad piece of English right there. You don't say you yourselves. You don't need to use it twice. Unless you're emphasizing. And that's what God's doing. 
He can't use italics. He can't use bold. He can't underline. So he repeats himself. It's like when he says, holy, holy, holy. The point is in this moment, you yourselves. I want you to understand this, Israel. I want you to personalize this. I want you to see this as emphasized in your life. You yourselves. And then he reminds them in a verse. He points them back to all that he has done to rescue them and bring them to himself. You yourselves know. Israel, you yourselves have seen. You were there. Israel, you were there when I did the plagues. You saw how the plagues came on Egypt, but they never came on you. Egypt went dark, but you had light. Israel was covered in water with blood, but you just had pure water. Israel had boils. You had health. Each and every time, you've seen how I operated with you, Israel. You saw me through the plagues. You had a first-hand seat to see my power and my glory, how I punished them but saved you. Israel, you were there when I parted the Red Sea. You were there when you walked through it on dry ground, and to either side of you were great walls of water. Israel, you were there. You saw this yourself. And you were there, Israel. When the water came down on your enemies, and in a moment I destroyed your enemies and saved you. And then Israel, for the last three months, we've been walking around the wilderness, making a way to hear where I'd engage with you and meet with you. And I've provided for you again and again. You wanted water? I provided you with water. You wanted food? I miraculously provided you with food. You needed leadership? I provided you with leadership. You needed direction? I miraculously guided you. With a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. Israel, you yourselves have seen. And so Israel, I trust you know then who you are. Because you are a saved and a redeemed people. That's your identity. That's who you really are before me. And so Israel, I trust you know then how I really feel about you. See, these words in verse 4 are strikingly personal. That's why we see the phrase, you and I, and you and I, and you and I, three times. It's like God's having a conversation. Israel, you know me, and I know you. And these words are also strikingly tender in tone. Look again. For you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You know, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, then I'm sure that phrase on eagles' wings won't have escaped your attention. Because there is a number of occasions in the Lord of the Rings when they are saved on eagles' wings. Whether it be Gandalf when he's in the tower or the hobbits on Mount Doom. And each and every occasion when it looks like they are finished, it is the end of their life, they are saved on eagles' wings. They're not flapping away by themselves, negative. They are falling on the eagles, exhausted, and the eagles carry them to safety. And what God is helping Israel see in this moment is, Israel, that is exactly what I've done for you. I saved you. I bore you on eagles' wings, and I brought you to 
myself. Israel, you are a saved and a redeemed people. You know, the Israelites were eyewitnesses to an incredible act of salvation and redemption. They had seen it firsthand, hadn't they? But in all honesty, my friends, I want to submit to you that if you're a Christian, if you belong to Christ, then in all honesty, you have been an eyewitness to a salvation and redemption even greater than theirs. Namely, your own. See, the Bible is clear that we too were at one time also slaves. Not slaves to Egypt, slaves to something far worse. Slaves to sin. Slaves to the power and penalty of sin in our lives. We were slaves to it. We were bound to it and we couldn't do anything about it. To its power, we freely followed the prince of the power of the air. We couldn't seem to get out of it. And slaves to its penalty. We were in a collision course with God's wrath, an object of his wrath. That is the power and penalty of sin. And what's even more frightening about where we were in Egypt is we didn't even know we were there. Blind to it and dead to it. That's why the Apostle Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. He says, as for you, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, include yourself, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were not only subject to the power and penalty of sin in our lives, in chains to it, but we were dead to that reality and couldn't even see. So how is it that you and I this morning are a people who have been forgiven of their sin, it's been removed as far as the east is from the west, have been reconciled to God so you can have a relationship with Him, have been adopted by God so that you can call Him Father and know for sure that heaven is your home. How has that taken place? How have you gone from bondage to sin to now having life in His name? Well, the way that's happened is because at the right time, God sent forth his son and Jesus Christ came after you on the greatest rescue mission ever told and through Jesus' death and resurrection he then bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to himself isn't that wonderful you see we like Israel are a saved and redeemed people and before God communicates anything else to us That's what he wants us to know through this verse. Israel, sovereign grace, this is your identity. You are a saved and a redeemed people. That's who you are. You're saved first, Americans second. That's our identity. Saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's our identity. But God didn't save us to just then say, this is awesome. I've saved you, set you free, on your way. No. He didn't do that. There's more to this. And that's where he goes next with point two, our purposeful and kind command. With me at verse five. He says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. You know, it is so easy right here to get unhelpfully, I think, distracted in our eyes and ears by the word if. 
is if the word if is the center point of the verse, and if the word if is maybe describing the if of decision. And to think that would be an epic mistake. See, all too often I think we can think of the, the commands, the covenant, all these things that we've got to do as the means of our salvation. But pay attention to where we are in the book. Chapter 19. God's already saved them. He's already saved them. They've already been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the blood of the Lamb alone. They're already completely redeemed. This isn't the if of decision going on here. He's already saved them by His grace. No, this is the if of opportunity. What God is doing here is introducing them to a new covenant, a covenant that they will have as His children with two paths, a way of blessing, a way of curse. If you choose this path, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, it's going to go well for you. If you choose to reject me and not listen to my commands, it's just not going to go so great. This isn't the if of decision. This is the if of opportunity that he's talking about here. But more even than that, in all reality, the word if is not the center point of the verse. Now, the center point of the verse are the two first words where he says, now, therefore. Israel, you've been saved on eagle's wings and God has brought you to himself. Now, therefore. That's the point. That's the center of the hinge. That's the center of the words that change everything. That is the centerpiece of these words that you understand nothing will ever be the same again afterwards. We see this taking place in many places in the Bible. Take Ephesians chapter 4, for example. God has just spent, through the Apostle Paul, three chapters reminding them of the glories of salvation. Right? You were dead in your transgressions and sins. You had no hope. There's nothing you can do about it. But God, by His grace, has saved you. You've been forgiven of your sin. You've been redeemed. You've been adopted. Heaven is going to be your home. He's given you the gift of the Spirit, a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. And then he says in chapter 4, I therefore, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've received. In light of all that God has done for you, I therefore urge you to live in a manner worthy of the calling you've received. Get it? He does the same in Romans 12. For 11 chapters at the start of Romans, you're just seeing one glorious thing after the next about salvation. The glories of all that God has done through Jesus Christ for us, having put our faith in Him. And then he tells us, chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In light of all that He has done for you, in light of all the things He has proclaimed over your life, in light of this great salvation, I therefore urge you, offer your lives as a living sacrifice. And that's exactly what God is doing here in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. I have bore you on eagles' wings. I've saved you by my grace alone through faith alone, through the blood of the Lamb of the alone. I've done it all. I've saved you, Israel. Now, therefore, you have been purchased for a purpose. 
You have been saved for, from something to something. Indeed, to someone. For your freedom then was never meant to be freedom in and of itself, but freedom to worship and serve and have a relationship with the one true and living God. See, that's why God saved them. He didn't just save them to like, listen, I'm just, just going to get you out your chains and then you just go on your merry way, be truly free. No, I'm going to get you out your chains so that you can do what you were always designed for, so you can find an identity and a purpose and a joy in that which you were meant to find, identity and purpose and joy, namely myself. So I'm going to set you free, Israel, so that you can worship me and know me and relate to me. You know, I think one of the biggest growth points in a Christian's life is understanding that there is always a now, therefore, in our lives as well. God didn't just save you so that you could go on your merry little way and do your thing. That's not true freedom. He set you free so that you could know him. So that you could know him as Savior and King and Lord and Redeemer and Father. So that you could worship him and understand him for who he really is. And so that you could serve him. You know, I remember hearing the phrase, save to serve, all my life. And I'm not really a cliche type of guy, so I never, ever said it. Until I started preaching through Exodus, and I realized, we're saved to serve. <laughs> it's kind of come from the Bible. You know, there is a point to it. We are actually saved to serve somebody. We all serve somebody. We're either going to serve ourselves, the world, or the Lord. We all serve somebody. And what God is doing is setting us free to serve him, to know him for who he really is. One of the biggest growth points in the Christian life, I genuinely believe, is starting to understand that there is a now, therefore, in my life. And I think the secondary growth point in our life is when we realize that that now, therefore, is the absolute kindness of God to us. It is such a loving and kind expression for him to call us to himself. And allow us to serve him. See, the tone of the whole story of Exodus, right from the start, is one of the kind provision of the Lord. And it's beautiful. You know, to read through it and preach through it, it is to be overwhelmed as you see just how kind God is. Israel had been in bondage and chains for 400 years. And God has heard their cry. He's seen their affliction. He's aware of all that is taking place. And he knows now is the time. Numerically, they've become a great nation. Now is the time to release my people, to bring them back to myself. And that's exactly what he does. He performs miracles to release these people. The Egyptians were the most powerful nation in the entire planet at the time. There was no way out in and of themselves. But God, boom, steps in and they are saved. And they start to go around the wilderness and they're whining, they're moaning. They're like the predecessors of the disciples, these people. They just grumble at everything. But God just continues to show them favor and grace again and again. I mean, they come out. I mean, it's, it's hilarious, really. They come out. They've been saved through the waters. Two days in, they're like, we're kind of thirsty. I'm really thirsty. There's no water. And I don't know. I don't know. I think it was probably better in there. And you're like, are you kidding? But God just shows them grace and he gives them water. A few days on, they're getting a bit hungry. They're like, I'm kind of hungry. There's not enough snacks out here. And God blesses them. He's like, well, I'll provide for you. I'm going to give you manna and quail. And 
And then a few chapters on, you, you find that they're getting thirsty again. And you think, I think I've seen this movie. We know what happens. You don't complain this time. You trust God and he'll bless you. They complain. They whine. They pull the same thing again. Oh, it was better for us in Egypt. We had lots of water. You're like, give me a break. But God gives them water again. They don't know where to go, so God guides them. Moses starts to get overwhelmed in his leadership. He's like, man, there's, there's like me and two million of them. I, I can't do all these things. And God provides Jethro, his father-in-law, for him to give him advice. And he's like, this is genius. Well, it's because it's ultimately coming from the Lord, and they start to disseminate leadership. Over and over again, God is providing for them by his grace. He's constantly leading them graciously. And, you know, sometimes I think one of the mistakes we can make is we think of the first 19 chapters of Exodus as God's grace. And then chapter 20, law, it's law time. Grace over here, grace, it's restored by grace. Now it's law. No, no, it's not law. The law isn't given by some sort of distant authoritarian master that's not interested. No, the law is given by a loving and kind father that says, listen, I know how it's going to go well for you. I made you. And I love you. And I don't want to see you destroy your lives. I don't want to see you destroy each other. And you're going to be a city on a hill. You know, it's going to be through you that people know that I'm really God. And and I love you. So I'm going to give you commandments and covenants to keep. Because that's how it will go well for you. Do you see? It's still grace. It's always grace. God is a gracious, kind, merciful God all the time. And so what you have here is a purposeful and kind command. Israel, I bore you on eagle's wings, and I brought you to myself. Now, therefore. That brings us to point three, our profound opportunity. Again at verse 5. He says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. You know, our profound opportunity then is not only to live in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received. That is incredible enough as it is. To know that you were dead in your transgressions and sins, that you're an object of his wrath, but now you're a child of God and he's actually giving you purpose. That's incredible to know that I have the privilege of serving the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's astounding, is it not? But it gets even more incredible because what we discover in these verses is he gives us an even better profound opportunity, which is actually that of living our lives as the people that God has already called us and declared us to be. Upon salvation, he has called us and declared us to be certain things. And what we discover in these verses is when we obey his voice and seek to keep his covenant, we get to live out our lives being that which he's already declared us to be. You see, when we obey his voice and seek to keep his covenant, number one, we get to live, he says, as his treasured possession. What an endearing phrase. A treasured possession. The thing that you think about. The thing that you care about. I mean, this is my treasured possession. 
And God says, yeah, that, that's you. And if you obey my voice and seek to keep my covenant, you get to live as my treasured possession. What a sweet and kind and loving reality that is. You know, I have five kids. And I love them all. They're all really great. They're, they're a lot of fun. Um, I love being a dad. It's hard. I mean, being a parent is so difficult, isn't it? You know, Being a lead pastor, yeah, it's not too bad. Being the director of Emerging Nations, that's a bit tricky, but not so bad. Being a dad, really hard. It's just so hard. And I have five kids, and I love them all. They're, they're very dear. But there's times in, in their lives where the kids will do something that causes me as a dad to say, you know what? I really love it when you do that. I just really love it. When you speak to your mom like that, or when you look after your sister like that, or when you help in that way, I just really love it. Or when you talk to me like that and you let me in your life like that, I just really love it. I love my kids all the time, but they do certain things that enable me as a dad to say, I really love that. And that's what God's telling us about here. In headline, what we're looking at is the opportunity as we obey his voice and keep his covenant to give him moments where he looks on at you, obeying his word, trusting in his word, keeping his covenant, giving him the opportunity to look at you and go, you know what? I love that. Are you aware that that's what God does to you? He always loves you. But there are certain things that you do that he looks on and goes, I love that. That's why we read in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 6, for God loves a cheerful giver. Does that mean he doesn't love you if you're not a cheerful giver? Well, no. He does love you. But when we give cheerfully, he's able to look onto that and goes, I love that. I really love it when you do that. And that's what God's like. God is looking for ways to commend us. He's looking as his eyes go to and fro from the land. He's not looking at you to find out, oh, there's a problem. There's a problem. There's a problem. No, that's not what he's doing. He's looking at you to find ways of commending you. Are you aware of that? See, I used to be really nervous about the last day. Really nervous. Because, you know, I'm like the Apostle Paul, where you're just aware, you know, why is it that I keep on doing the things I know I shouldn't do, and I don't do the things I know I should do? Oh, wretched man that I am. And then you find out on the last day, all the secret things in your heart are going to be revealed, and you think, oh my gosh. I hope no one's there. I hope it's just me. Um, and I hope it's a short video or something. I don't know. Maybe I could just be in a room outside while they play. I mean, I was always nervous about that moment, thinking this is going to be really awkward because I'm, I'm aware that life hasn't always been like awesome all the time. I keep doing things I know I shouldn't and I don't do things I know I should. And I don't think this moment's going to go very well for me when the secrets of my heart are revealed. But actually what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, is it says, on that day, the secret things of the hearts will be revealed. And then it says this, and then each one will receive their commendation from God. How beautiful. He wants to reveal the secret so he can applaud you. So he can say, you know what? You were always my treasured possession. But when you did that and that and that that no one knew about, I loved that. Well done. What a sweet and kind and loving opportunity God has given us to honor Him and live our lives for Him, albeit imperfectly. 
but allowing Him moments where He looks on at you in your life, things that happen publicly and things that happen privately, and allow Him to say, I love that. When we obey His voice and keep His covenant, we get to live as His treasured possession. And also, number two, we get to live as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And in the Old Testament, the priests had an incredibly privileged position. They had unique access to God, and so it was their privilege to stand between God and man. That was their job. That's what priests did. They represented people before God in prayer and in offerings and in intercession. They would stand in effect between people and God and pray for people and offer offerings for people. And then on other occasions, they would represent God to the people. They'd represent God's voice to the people. They would bring instruction on behalf of God to the people. They would seek to reflect His character to the people. And what God's trying to help all of Israel, and indeed now us, to see is when we obey His voice and seek to keep His covenant, then this profound privilege of being a priest is now ours. It's a responsibility and an opportunity he gives to you and to me to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation as people that have a unique access to him. He's given us the distinct privilege to be a royal priesthood and a holy nation. As you know, when we gather and pray for people and pray for our pastors and pray for the church, And pray for evangelism and pray for the nations. In that moment, God's looking on and saying, yeah, there you go. There you are. You're being my royal priesthood. You're being a holy nation. You're being a people that had always declared you to be. I'm listening to you. You have access to me. I want to know what's on your heart. I'm aware that just this week, some of you gathered to pray. It's awesome. I want you to be aware that when you gathered, you were a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's what you were doing. You were operating as a priest in that moment, in effect, before the Lord, making intercession for people to the Lord. And likewise, God has given us the privilege to represent Him to people, hasn't He? Often in the New Testament, we call it ambassadors. It's the same thing. God's called us to be holy as He is holy. Why? Well, ultimately, so that the God who always seeks to make himself known all the way through Exodus, will be able to still make himself known. How? Through you. Through the way you live in your life. So that as people in the world interact with you, and they hear the way you speak, the way you think, the way you operate, the way you value things, they should be able to go, what is up with that? And then your job is to do show and tell. Well, I've shown you. Like, my life might be different. And let me tell you why it's different. It's different because Jesus changed my life. And you get to invite them to God, the one who changed your life, to show them and explain to them, I really ain't that special. I ain't that good. But I serve one who is wonderful. And his name's Jesus. Let me tell you about him. He changed my life. You know, that is what it means to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so no wonder... Peter gets a bit lathered up about it. In 1 Peter 2 verse 9, when to his congregation he says this, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Sound familiar? 
He's got it from Exodus chapter 19. He's saying, listen, God told him there, that's what we are. That's who we are. We are a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are a people of his own possession. Why? So that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He's explained it to his church. Listen, he's declared you to be a treasured possession. He's declared you to be a chosen race. Live it out. Let the world see. Why? Because that's how we proclaim the glories of God. Change lives. Doesn't mean we have to be perfect. You ain't going to be able to do that. But as imperfect disciples, there should be something distinct about us that people pick up and go, what is up with that? And in doing that, we are proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We should be able to model for people like Israel did what it is to have a relationship with God that changes your life. You see, these are words that change everything. Everything changes in the book of Exodus after these words. And our lives, because the word of God is alive, can be changed by them as well. See, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, here's the reality. Spiritually speaking, you're still in Egypt. You're still there. You're still in bondage to the power and penalty of sin in your own life. That's the way we all start. And you're dead in your transgressions and sins. You're in bondage to the power and penalty of sin in your life. And you might try and think, well, I'm going to go to church a bit. I'm going to try and do good to people. And I'm going to pray now and again and read my Bible. Go for your life. But it will not break the chains. It will never be enough. There's only one way to get out the chains. And his name is Jesus. Jesus made it possible for those chains to be broken. And the Bible makes it clear that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Why? So that anybody who believes in him would not perish and have eternal life. What does that mean? Well, here's what it means. When you put your faith in him, your chains are broken and you can start to rise and go forward and follow thee. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, our chains are broken and we can have a relationship with God that we were always made for. You can never earn it in and of yourself. Jesus Christ earned it for you. And it's faith in him and faith alone in him that can bridge the gap. So if today you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Cry out to him. Put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior. And in that very moment, your chains will be broken. You will be able to rise and go forward and follow thee. If you're here today and you are a Christian, you are a believer, which is the majority of you, I simply want to encourage you in closing that you have been given a ring to carry far greater than anything Frodo could have ever asked or imagined to carry. Because you've been given the ring of salvation. God, by His grace, saved you on eagle's wings and brought you to Himself. Now, therefore, live in a manner worthy of the calling that you've received. Live in a manner worthy of the ring you carry in your hand. 
Live for the Lord. You may be looking on thinking, man, this is just so hard. There's just so many things I've got to do. Listen, it's not just too hard. It's impossible. You ain't going to be able to do it by yourself. But the Holy Spirit lives in your heart. The Spirit of Jesus lives in your heart. And it is Him who is changing you from one degree of glory to another. We need to trust Him and put off the old self and be renewed in our mind and put on the new self and go forward on our knees saying, Lord, I need your help because this is just like me. And I can't do this. But I can do all things through you who strengthens me. So Lord, help me. Help me become more like you. Lord, you have saved me on eagle's wings. And so I carry the ring of the gospel in my hands. And now, therefore, I rise and I follow you. Sovereign Grace, I want to encourage you. Let that be your story. In our lives, we get one shot. And each and every year, if you're like Sydney, each and every year we go, my goodness, another year gone. I can't believe it. Our lives seem to be speeding up, do they not? What that means is you'll be dead before you know it. You've only got one shot at holding the ring. Live your life with the ring in your hand. Live for Jesus. And with all glory go to him. Let's pray. Well, Lord, you are worthy of our full attention. I thank you that you did save us on eagles' wings. And you did bring us to yourself. Lord, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. Nowhere to go. And then you called our names. And you didn't just then call our names to see us running off and doing our thing. No, you called our names so that we would run to you and know you as Father and Redeemer and Creator and King. So Lord, help us to be Christians who live for the audience of one. Help us to be Christians that understand the ring that we carry in our hand and run hard for you. You're worthy of our praise. You're worthy of our affection. And so would this be our story. In Jesus' name, amen.